Hello everyone, welcome to your Friday night at the Barbell. Tonight with us we have Mark Minyard. He is a graduate student in human nutrition as well as a strength and nutrition coach, competitive powerlifter, recreational bodybuilder, husband and father. He loves all things behavior change, nutrition science, strength and hypertrophy just like the rest of us. You can catch him on Instagram at Mark Minyard. That's M-A-R-K-M-I-N-Y-A-R-D. <laughs> yes. Mark, how's it going? It's going great. I am uh, really glad to be here, guys. This is my, I guess, my first podcast appearance, so it's it's an honor that you guys invited me on. Uh, I got a chance to catch most of one of your recent episodes with uh, some new competitors that are new to the sport of powerlifting, and it's just always exciting. It got me amped up to think about competing myself again. I haven't been on the platform in over a year and a half now, um, and uh, I'm kind of kind of getting anxious to get back there, honestly, at this point. So I think what you guys are doing is great, um, you know, putting folks out there to give them a chance to share their experiences of the sport. It's such a community-based sport, you know, um, and one that really thrives off these types of groups of people that are passionate about it. Um, you know, you got, you, you got things like Sheffield and other national competitions, worlds, of course, is always interesting, but, um, it's really the community base of these, the, like you guys are doing in, in your area that, uh, is really the heartbeat of the sport in my opinion. So it's, uh, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be kind of a consensus is everyone is mainly enjoying the community aspect of powerlifting and everything else they can kind of drop, but the community is what brings people back to it. Mm-hmm. So we kind of have a trend and we open everything with a controversial question that oh, I have not mentioned to you yet. Oh, awesome. So, and I, f <laughs> I feel like with your background, this is the perfect question. I want to know how many holes are in a straw? Oh my gosh. Holes in this. That's such an, it's funny you mentioned this. It's, it's making me think back to when I was in my undergrad. I've got a degree in engineering, by the way, for the listeners. I got 10 years ago. In my last semester, I took a class called Differential Geometry. And we talked about, we didn't talk about this question, but it was all about the mathematical formulas for different shapes and things. Uh, I think my opinion is that there, there, I would say there's two holes. That's just my intuition. I'm sure if you went to my old professor at University of Memphis, who, who taught me di differential geometry, he, he could give you some mathematical explanation on, you know, if you have these certain assumptions and axioms about surfaces, you know, here's how you could answer that mathematically accurately. But I'm just going to go off my intuition because I only took one class in that subject. So that's my best answer I can offer. See, and we said we have someone way smarter than us on the podcast, and you're like, oh, no, 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 and I can guarantee you no one else would have answered it that way. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It was a neat class. I just thought the shapes in the textbook were cool, and there was a bunch of these complex – there was all these comp complex uh, equations and um, calculus that was involved with it. So it was it was a very like introductory course into that field. And I don't know how practical the applications are for it. I think some of it goes towards like 3D animation and things. But anyway, it was just it's a random thing I, I did in college and uh it's I didn't expect that to come up on today's podcast. So I appreciate the question about straws and holes. Oh yeah, I feel like uh that your answer is better than anything we could have given. So I'm gonna have to <laughs> just agree with you because I don't know if I can refute that. Yeah. I get the argument for there being one hole. I mean, because it's it really makes you think back to the your assumptions about shapes and surfaces and stuff, and like you know, what are the yes. boundaries of that? You know, I, I'm only even trying to go further with it. That's the best I got. <laughs> Carson or Josh, anything to add? Uh, I'm gonna go with one hole. Okay. <laughs> Simple monkey. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna go with one hole too. Like a, because it's like a cylinder, so there's only one hole right in the middle of it. So. One hole enjoyers. Understood. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That'll be the plan. <laughs> so I think telling Carson and Josh a little bit about you and things you mentioned to me, we talk every so often. Carson was blown away by your 1,300 sessions without a miss, being a dad, <laughs> being a husband, being a full-time worker and teacher and coach, all the things plus not missing a training session, basically yeah. just how do you manage your time that is better than everyone else? 
Uh, I don't know if it's any better, and I'll, I should be very clear about this 1300 trend. So in 2017, when I first was getting serious about fitness, um, I downloaded an, downloaded an app called Strong, and they're a pretty small app. They, they don't, I don't think they have a huge following, and I just I got their app, and it's, it's worked for me for the past five to six years, um, and I stuck with it. And so every time you log a workout, it just it'll count it up. And so I, I, every session, it's just a habit for me. It's a reflex. I just pop my app open. It's like, like a lot of people that use um, workout trackers. Um, and yeah, so to be clear, I mean, there's probably been at least two, maybe two periods where I didn't lift formally, like exercise for like a week. So there's probably been like a gap, a small gap here and there. But here's the thing, like the, the time that comes to mind where I didn't lift weights for a week was my honeymoon in 2018. Um, my wife is... I love her to death. She's more adventurous than me as far as nature events. So she was like, let's go on a honeymoon, like go out and hike and stuff. And so we did, we went to Northwest Arkansas and I like blistered the hell out of my feet on all those hikes. So I was still very physically active that week, even though I didn't count those towards my training sessions. Um, but for me, I think this is what it comes down to. And I think this is an important subject for anyone who's serious about making a change. It has to become really important to you and you just can't, flip a switch in your brain and make that happen, it's probably going to take some time of you contemplating, like, what are the benefits of this? Is this really, is this change or this behavior I'm going to start doing consistently, what is this going to really do for me? It's going to, you got to visualize the person you want to become and see this as the methods and steps you have to take to get there. Um, But the the fundamental answer, which is the boring answer, is like training is just extremely important to me. Um, And it's interesting that I've been doing it for quite a while now that um, I almost don't even know why anymore. I mean, I know that all the textbooks answers of like, you know, lifting weights is good for your health and longevity and all this stuff. Um, but uh, for me, when I wake up in the morning, it's it's got it's changed a little bit since I became a father and especially since I became a dad. But for the first three years of this, you know, me really being into training consistently, I would wake up and I would think like, how am I fitting training into my day to day? Pretty much seven days a week. Um, and it was that way for about three solid years. And that doesn't just go away overnight. And like I say, uh, I've definitely gotten more into the phase of like, oh, I actually, you know, maybe I, I, uh, I'm a little late getting to my sessions this week, you know? And, and, um, yeah, so I I guess I should be clear the 1300 workouts consistently, there's probably been a few times where it's like of my five plan workouts, maybe I only got to four of them. So I should be honest about that. But for me, the reason I like talking about that is I'm so proud of myself that it's become so important that that t- that number's gotten so high in five years. That so that comes from me being active consistently, like every week. Um, and uh, yeah, it depends on like how I program for myself too. If I don't have a coach, I, I had an gr- awesome coach for a couple of years, Jake from Data Driven Data Driven Strength. He actually was just on the Revive Stronger podcast for the people that are into bodybuilding. I don't know if any, any of your listenership is into that. Um, I was just listening to that tonight. Um, but for me, it, it became super important. And I also have a flexible mindset about it. So this is something I encourage with my clients, whether we're working on nutrition changes or training changes. You have to view success a little bit more broadly. So I've gone on trips where I don't have a barbell. I still train. That I literally have like gone behind an Airbnb on a lake and found a heavy log. And like, okay, I was supposed to do like overhead press today and squats. I'm going to just cradle this and squat. Then I'm going to lift it overhead as many times as I can for a few sets. And I, I work up a sweat. I've worked out a little bit and I, I go back to my vacation. So I have a flexible mindset around consist, consistent training. Um, you know, if I was prepping for a meet, it would, I would probably be looking for how could I get to a gym that has a barbell because you got to st- stick with a specificity to really peak well. Um, but for staying active and consistent, uh, my overall goals uh, for, from training is just to get more muscle mass and be healthy and fit and with the occasional meat sprinkled in. But yeah, it's really important to me and I have a flexible mindset around what it means to stay active. And even that's, that's changed recently where I'm doing more running. So sometimes I'll just say, I'm going to make sure I get in my cardio this week. Even if I get, get some of my lifting, I will. But yeah, my app says I've done like 1,361 workouts, I think, or something like that. So, and, and it's, it's kind of cool to have that tracker because I, I can think back to the times when I, I remember when I hit 800 and I remember when I hit 1,000 and, and it's just kind of yeah. cool to see those wins stack up over time. That was a long answer for a simple question, but that's the, that's what I got to say. I'm just going to get in here. Brian. Uh, I just want to say, I, I think that's super admirable. And whenever Brian was kind of telling me about you, Mark, and kind of, you know, all the things you did as a dad, I had two young children, one and three. I just, that was pretty remarkable to me. Um, cause I work, I work full time, have two young kids, 
Um, and, you know, going to the gym, I feel like, especially trying to be competitive at a high level is, it, it, it's a lot more of you, but, um, I just think that's very, um, it's, but going back to what you said, Mark, you know, at the end of the day, if you want something bad enough, or if it's important to you, then you will find a way to make it work. And that's kind of way, the way my mom that has always been is, you know, it gets really hard at times. My son, he has some, a lot of medical problems and life gets in the way. But at the end of the day, if you want to be successful, if you make it important to you, you want it bad enough, then, you know, you, you will have success in it. So yeah. I think that's, that's really, really, really cool though, that, um, how you do so much. It's impressive. Yeah. And I've got a few other small advantages for me. I've, I've invested in a home gym that I've had with, you know, within 20 feet of my bedroom at my house. Like I've lived in two different houses with a home gym. And so I've, I've got everything I need to train very close by. Um, even then there, even then there are still barriers, you know, you're talking about some medical issues. Those are seriously important things that, you know, we as parents, um, if you have listeners that are also parents, you know, that that's, I would encourage you to prioritize your family over training for sure. But, uh, but yeah, you'll find ways to make it work. I mean, my training has changed a little bit. I've, I've even thought about how I might not program heavy deadlifts if my son's going to be out in the garage with me just because he runs around and he might get in the way. And so I train with my kid around sometimes. And so that's changed things. But uh, it also, and you hear this from a lot of the kind of strong dad club and, and other uh, social media um, accounts that are for parents. Um, we want our kids to see us staying active and, and seeing that it's important. And I, I think it's, it is beautiful to hand that to your kids. And, and along with that is showing them a healthy way to engage with it. And I will add this little thing. If you're serious about being a, an elite competitor in something, that's going to require sacrifice. And I am not here to tell anyone what level of sacrifice is appropriate. I do think if you have a family, you should keep open communication with them about this. And yeah, it's a compromise and everybody's, everybody's situation is different. Um, but kind of going back to training on vacation, if you've got a meet coming up, I wouldn't be missing my squats, you know, for a week and a half on vacation. I would find a way to train. So it's just a balance to have. But I appreciate that you found it inspirational. Uh, I hope it is. And it's something I'm, I'm proud of. And it's something that uh, I hope people can understand that having that flexible mindset um, and defining success broadly can help you stay consistent. You know, because the people I work with, I don't, I have not yet coached anyone who's super competitive. I have one client, I'm really excited for him. He's got his first meet in a few months. We're prepping for that. I, I hope that they can take away from working with me that this is something that you can do for a long time. And I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. People that are into competitive powerlifting, it just seems like burnout is so frequent. And I did a post about this on my page recently. There's just people who are like, no days off, hustle, grind. Then like, it's been three months. I'm like, wait, where'd that guy go? Like he was always in here for like a few months and now I haven't seen him in like half a year. And so it's, it's a, definitely a thing that you need to balance and kind of pick your battles. If you're prepping for a meet, there's times where you got to bring the intensity. You got to go after you get home when the kids are in bed, gym's 24 seven. I missed my session today. I'm not going to miss it. I'm going to go at 11 PM. And I have done plenty of that of I'm tired, but like I, I want to do this. And so I'm going to go and compromise some sleep a little bit. Um, as far as, you know, how do you balance all these things? If you have a family and a job and you're doing a coaching business like me, um, you have to choose where you're going to make those sacrifices. Right. And so it's a very personal decision. Um, and you're going to have to make some compromises there. For example, I've been in graduate school for four years now and I I do one class a semester now. I could be finished sooner, but I I've decided to go slower and not sacrifice my grades. Um, so I have time to be a dad and still work and launch a coaching business and all this stuff. So yeah, just some other thoughts on that. I think that alone is pretty remarkable. Going back to school as an adult with priorities is not easy. And if no one's done it, they don't really understand. So that it makes it even harder when people are like, why are you just going back to school? You, you're an engineer. Yeah. So I guess I, I haven't that makes it a little that more difficult. Yeah. I currently work as an engineer full time. Uh, I work for a good company um, here in, in Memphis. Um, and uh, I've been there almost 10 years. But I did a post on my, I believe it or not, I'm on LinkedIn, you know, and I'm not like, you know, 50 years old. Uh, But I did a post on LinkedIn um, about what I've been doing with my graduate studies. Um, And it's just been a passion pursuit. You know, it's really, you know, I I did engineering school for very practical reasons. And it was, it's a great career. It really is. You know, I got into a a very 
uh, marketable field. I'm, I'm an automation engineer, so I, I program like manufacturing equipment and like process controls. And uh, one of the my customers I've been done a lot of work with is soybean protein powder plant. You know, they process soybean flakes, and so it's it's really it's a really important field that we need in our society. Um, and, and it's been good, but uh, it doesn't it hasn't scratched that just curios- curiosity itch for me like nutrition nutrition science and strength training has. You know, I think like a lot of people, I, I got into my first powerlifting like training block and then was addicted to lifting. Um, and I'm here I am still training. And I've, I've, I've loved the avenues that the barbell has sent me um, really more into, into the nutrition side of things in the past few years. But really all aspects of strength, hypertrophy and, and fitness is interesting to me. So I had so a, a little, well, I guess kind of group of questions. Brian has him sitting in front of me, but I do. Um, so... So I kind of wanted to do this, Mark. So I know as a, as someone that's very well versed in nutrition and diet, you probably hear a lot of misinformation online and in person. So I kind of have like the, the gym bro myth. Say you're, you're in the gym and one of your friends you're working out with or whatever is like, Hey man, as soon as we do this last set of barbell curls, I got to get out of here. I got to get home. I got to get my shake in, my rice cakes, like the anabolic window. So what's your, what's your thoughts on get the nutrition in or basically you might as well not even worked out. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a, that's a common, uh, and I I would say it is a myth. uh, And it's one that definitely needs to be dispelled. Of course, gently, you know, when it comes to any, anything, and, and if you talk to other student dietitians or, people who study nutrition at the level I do, um, we all develop kind of this understanding of like, we're going to be confronted with stuff we know is not scientifically backed all the time. And the best response you can have is just smile and say, I'm so happy for that. That's working for you. And wait for the opportunities when people ask questions like you are now, Carson, asking me, is this true or not? And so it's like, for us, we're like, oh, this is the moment we've been waiting for. Our input is now invited rather than we're trying to force it down someone's throat. Because and you see this online, the, the kind of nutrition myth hacking accounts, they get burnt out trying mm. to shut, cut, cut down all the, the BS all the time. And so I appreciate the chance to actually engage one of these questions. So I'm getting off topic. All right. So do you need to eat protein very soon after you lift? No. So it's been, I don't have the exact PubMed references and I could look them up if, you, if your listenership is curious, but it's well established in the exercise science literature that muscle protein synthesis is elevated for 48 hours post-exercise. Yeah, so, you know, if you're, you're training, um, if you're doing a muscle group split, split or you're training full body like a lot of powerlifters do, your muscles are going to be ready to soak up protein and, and be remodeling and, and doing all the good stuff we want from training for well over a day, almost going on two days. So what that means is, if you're eating an overall balanced diet with adequate protein, when you eat, you know, doesn't matter a whole lot. I, there may have been some studies looking at, you know, do you get a small benefit if you time things a little better? Yeah, I think so. You know, intermittent fasting is really popular right now. I, you know, if you want to maximize your gains and you're really worried about the extra like one to five percent difference, yeah, making sure you've had protein within a couple of hours before and after training is a good idea. But uh, you're going to get the majority of the benefits of protein as long as you're eating it. A, a few times every day, you know, or at least a couple times a day. And whether or not that's two hours or even, you know, 10 hours before training, as long as your calorie intake is adequate and, and that protein intake is adequate, the exact timing doesn't matter as much. And, and I would definitely challenge someone who feels like their workout is ruined if they don't have protein right after they train. They're really missing out on a lot of the benefits of training. And there's a lot more to it than just getting protein utilized for, you know, re- remodeling and rebuilding your tissues. So, yeah. Uh, just to add on to that at the beginning, waiting on someone to ask you like what you actually think about it is kind of key because the hardest thing to do is to change someone's mind, especially when they're not ready. Uh, I mentioned that I was interested in behavior and belief change. That's a whole other side passion of mine that's developed in the past three years is as, as I got into studying nutrition science and realizing that you know people – People's beliefs are a lot more complicated than, oh, I saw these facts and now my mind is changed. That's not how it works. We're humans and we like stories and experience and what our friends think is super important to us, you know, and that's how we we operate. And it's not good or bad necessarily. I think it it could be good or bad depending on how it's used. But but yeah, so that's my best answer to the question of do you got to eat protein right after you train? Eat protein. Oh, we got Josh with a question. 
So I'm like kind of the complete opposite of Carson. I'm kind of not necessarily an idiot when it comes to nutrition and everything, but finding your like caloric intake, like how would you go about doing that? Yeah. So I, I saw this is one of the questions Brian sent me ahead of time. I appreciate him sending me those. And I had him clarify what you meant by that. Um, and so my understanding, and I wanted you to confirm this for me, Josh, is what you're asking about is how do I find out how many calories I need to eat per day to lose to, to start losing weight or, or cutting fat? Is that true? Yeah. 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 Okay, great. Yeah, I've got an answer for you. Okay, so we're going to do a quick review on some basics of metabolism. And this is high-level stuff. It's, we're not going to go super far into it, but we're going to get to the practical stuff in just a minute. So at a high level, you know, our bodies burn energy throughout the day. And re research scientists have really defined four components to metabolism. Um, and those are resting metabolic rate, which is the basically the energy you need to basically just walk around and, you know, do your basic task of life. This doesn't include exercise or anything. So that's RMR, resting metabolic rate. It also includes the thermic effect of food. So when we eat food, it goes into our GI tract, you know, down into our stomach and our digestive system. And it takes energy to break those bonds and digest the food. So there's a small caloric cost to metabolizing food. So that's the second component. We have RMR, TEF. Then you have exercise activity thermogenesis. This is the calories that you're burning when you train. So, you know, whether or not you're lifting weights or doing cardio or you're do doing a team sport event or playing pickup basketball, this would be considered ac exercise activity thermogenesis. And this is what people think about when they think about, I need to burn more calories. They're thinking about the calories that they need to um, do these extra activities like sports. And the final component is my favorite one. It's called non-exercise activity thermogenesis, abbreviated NEAT. Um, and this is basically activity that is non-consciously controlled. So and it, there's interesting research from this guy named Herman Ponser, and, and there's a whole, whole area of research in this, but basically where um, certain people just move around and fidget a lot more than others, and they burn a surprising amount of extra calories that way. And this stuff is involuntary. Um, I don't know if they would include stuff like movement during sleep, but even things like if you're just sitting there reading a book, you might tap your foot or something like that. And so those are the four components of metabolism, you know, RMR, TEF, EAT, EAT, and NEAT, N-E-A-T. So the most scientifically reliable method we have to calculate how many calories you're burning, like your RMR, that's resting metabolic rate, is something called the Mifflin-St. George equation. Um, and I won't repeat it here. It's always a test question if you go to school for nutrition on multiple classes. They're like, calculate someone's, you know, RMR. And then they say they, so so that'll give you a decent estimate of what your RMR is. And the inputs are like body weight and height um, and age and gender, um, or I think you should say sex. So you input those, your your parameters into the equation that spits out some number. That's going to be pretty low, you know, for someone like a 200 pound guy, uh, I think it might come out to like around 1400 or something like that. So it's pretty low for doing the calories. That doesn't include the thermic effect of food or your activity thermogenesis. So this is where I kind of get more to the practical side of when it comes to estimating your, your actual calorie burn, um, you have to make an assumption about how active you are. And so what they typically will do is they will have you multiply that RMR number by like 1.4 or 1.6 or up to 2 based on how active you are. And there are some questions you can answer that get you close, like do you have an active job and how much do you exercise? And it gets you a rough estimate of what your current calorie burn is. Now from there, Josh, when you have that number, then you make the decision of how many calories do I want to cut out of my diet to make sure that I'm burning more calories than I use. So all this science stuff I just went through honestly isn't that necessary for people starting out because when the clients come to me with questions about how many calories do I need to lose weight, what I do is I just take their current body weight and I multiply it by about 12 or 13 to get a rough calorie number. Um, and this is a very crude heuristic. This is the important thing. It's crude. Using the Mifflin-St-Jor equation and doing the multiplier is probably going to be a little more accurate. It's a little bit more work. But the important thing is let's give you a rough number that's probably going to be a deficit for you. Adhere to that calorie target, which is a whole other conversation. You know, stick to those calories for two weeks, and I want you to weigh yourself two to three times a week each week. We'll then look at the average of that first week against the average of the next week. And if that number is going down, you're currently in a caloric deficit. Now, I also have my clients monitor things like hunger. I want to make sure you're not super hungry throughout the day. If they're, they're saying, hey, man, I, I did that equation thing. 
and I'm starving every day and I've white knuckled this diet so far and I'm losing like four or five pounds a week. I say, okay, that's way too extreme, but we've got to get that biofeedback from my clients. Like I've got to know like, what, how are you responding to the caloric intake? So if you want to be more fancy, you can use the equation and then do the multiplier based on your activity, but it's still just a guess basically. And that's why I just like to use a simple heuristic and let's just start there. As far as when is it a concern, you start losing more than 2% of your body weight per week is pretty fast. You know, 200-pound guy, that's like 4 pounds a week. For one week, that's okay, but if you're constantly losing that much weight that quickly, that becomes a concern to me. And I would expect someone to feel a lot of hunger losing weight that quickly. So I've kind of gone off on a ramble about how I think about setting up clients for a weight loss diet. Does that make sense to you, Josh? Do you have questions? Yeah, no, it does. It makes a lot of sense because recently I've been trying to cut, cut weight. And Brian's been helping me a little bit, but I kind of wanted I didn't, maybe necessarily your expert opinion on it, on how to judge everything and how to kind of structure it myself so I can do it and lose weight effectively and not lose muscle mass or strength in the process. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely speak to that real quick. Just a couple of thoughts on that. Um, so, you know, losing weight healthfully is calories is the fundamental principle for like your body weight, right? We got to make sure the calorie energy balance is appropriate. So you got to be in a negative energy balance to lose weight. So you're expending more than you're taking in. But doing it healthfully, we get more into the concept and looking at what is your dietary pattern. So I use this thing called PFE with my clients, which, you know, I encourage them to eat, you know, several meals a day, you know, um, it usually at least three, you know, sometimes I like to have snacks, but I encourage them to make sure they're having some kind of protein food every meal, some kind of fibrous food every meal, like fruits and vegetables, and some kind of energy food, like carbs or some kind of higher fat thing like nuts. And I encourage them to use that kind of heuristic to plan out what they're going to eat. Just because if you're only thinking about calories, it kind of leads you down the road of like just eating a bunch of these like processed diet foods, like protein bars and protein shakes, and like not eating fruits and vegetables and like any kind of healthy starches. And yeah, you want to manage your calorie intake, but for you to feel good while doing it, you're going to want to be eating a, a, a diverse diet of, of healthy foods for the most part. So I feel like that was kind of, I wanted to get to that when you were talking about how do you do it healthfully. I would, I would include those things. So, I think another question I had was specifically for a competitive powerlifter or strength athlete, how would you advise a client to diet specifically losing fat to make weight for a competition whilst maintaining a pretty good degree of performance in the gym? Would you make specific manipulations to carbohydrate or fat? How would you go about that? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it adds a layer of nuance to what we were just talking about. Because what I just explained was general healthy fat loss for, for, for basically anyone. Those principles would apply for anyone. I think if you have a specific athletic pursuit or a fitness goal or a competitive goal like a powerlifting meet coming up, um, there are some other things you're going to want to consider. And there's going to be a little bit more homework on your part. But like we've talked about, if training is really important to you, you're going to be considering these things. Um, so fundamentally, the, the most important thing I would think about you know, if I'm losing weight in a strength for a strength sport, I want to be preserving muscle mass as much as I possibly can. And the number one most important thing about preserving muscle mass really isn't necessarily diet; it's that your training is appropriate. Now, I've seen most powerlifting programs preserving muscle mass is quite easy as long as you're training a few times a week pretty intensely, which is basically what powerlifters do. Uh, so fundamentally, make sure you're you're resistance training. You know. Uh, which is kind of a given for this population. The next most important thing I would consider is adequate protein intake. And I, I did some a bunch of notes, not a bunch, but I took some notes on this too, just to make sure we got things clear. So for someone who's in a strength sport, like a powerlifter, performance is really important to them. Uh, the lower end I would recommend would be start at least at 1.6 grams per kg, which comes out to, I'm trying to remember exactly the, the grams per pound. I should have put that in my notes here. That, that's like 0.8, that's right, it's about, it's around like 0 0.7, 0 0.8 grams per pound body weight. So for a 200 pound guy, that's going to be about, you know, 180 grams of protein a day. You could go higher than that if you want to. You could go up to, you know, 2.4 or so. It's going to be like a 1.5 grams uh, per pound body weight roughly. Um, so that's going to be putting you well over 200 grams of protein a day. So I would make sure that protein intake is adequate, which I feel like for a lot of guys that are into powerlifting, they probably are already probably close to that potentially. 
Um, but you'd have to do a kind of a, a macro audit to be confident that on your average day you're eating about that much protein. So we have the principle so far for maintaining muscle mass and performance while losing weight. Make sure your training is appropriate. It's, it's adequate. Um, and make sure your protein intake is, is appropriate. It's the second most important thing in my opinion. Um, the third most important thing I would say is to consider carbohydrate timing. So if we're losing weight, we're, we're going to be on restricted calories. We're going to dedicate a portion of those calories to our protein intake. Yes. Carbohydrate, for, from a performance standpoint in strength sport, carbohydrate is, is the most important, not most important, but one of the more important macros to consider. So I would plan to have at least, you know, 25 to 50 grams of carbohydrate within an hour to half an hour before you train. Um, make sure that's not a really high fibrous carb source that maybe like a bagel or something like that. Um, you know, some, a banana, you know, that's, that's not a real high fiber fruit. Make sure you're getting in some carbohydrates before training. It, you can use some refined carbohydrates like some candy or something, but, you know, the overall principles of a healthy diet apply to even competitive athletes, right? I wouldn't have my diet dominated with a bunch of, like, refined carbohydrates. Like, I mean, I'm, I remember I used to eat Pop-Tarts before I would go train, and I still do that, I think, sometimes. I just we don't buy much these days. So, and that's way more than <laughs> just 25 grams of carbohydrates in a pack of, package of Pop-Tarts. But getting in some carbohydrates before training to make sure you're fueled and energized for that. And then the post-workout window, I would consider, this is not like you're going to lose your gains if you don't have it, but to support recovery, we're talking about making things optimal, right, as much as we can. I would get into, get in some protein, yeah, and, and some carbohydrates, you know, especially carbohydrate, carbohydrates after training. You've just de depleted a bunch of glycogen from lifting weights and stuff. So maybe not a ton of glycogen, but some, depending on the type of training you did. So those are the kind of three things I consider. Do you have other questions about that? I think that pretty, pretty much hits it on the head. Um, maybe to piggyback into another question, uh, just since you mentioned kind of like pre-workout and post-workout, um, what would be a good example for any resistance trained athlete for a pre-intra and post-workout meal or nutrition? Sure. So I always like to go back to the, the overall picture to answer these questions because it, it is context dependent. So in the case of right. someone who is in a caloric deficit pursuing weight loss to, to drop down a weight class or lose some body fat, I would make sure we're, I'm using my calories really well. I want to make sure I'm using my calories for my adequate protein source, adequate protein intake, and also to make sure that I'm staying satiated. And so uh, let's talk first about the intra workout like nutrients, you know, like people who have like a glucose shake or some kind of like carbohydrate drink during training. Um, I don't know that that's super important for strength athletes, just because I mentioned burning um, glycogen, which is, you know, carbohydrate stored in your muscle. That really only comes to be a really big problem for people that are doing endurance events where they're staying active for a very long time. Powerlifters do utilize some of that, um, but it's, um, it's not going to totally deplete you. So I don't, unless you're training for like three, I mean, not even three, but like once you're getting to like a four hour training session, which I'm wondering what that programming looks like, um, maybe you think about some kind of inter, intro workout. Um, I know Bryant says he trains for three hours at a time. Uh, talk about being consistent. My work, my sessions yeah. do not last that long anymore. Um, but, but yeah, so I would say if you're in a caloric deficit, uh, I would focus on choosing, you know, a small pre-workout and maybe having a, some kind of post-workout thing um, after your training session. I would not spend calories on something as poorly satiating as like a carbohydrate drink during your session. I would rather you save those carbohydrates for like a starchy vegetable or some kind of grain with dinner. You know, when if you train in the afternoon, you know, a few hours after that, you, you have that with your dinner. So yeah, pre-workout. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is so personally, it's such a personal preference, you know, and it's funny in my coaching, it's evolved as I've started doing it because people, uh, they often, it's understandable that just tell me what to eat, tell me what to do. And, and I really have to direct them back to, you know, what are the basic principles? Like I've mentioned the PFE thing, you've got to choose what you want to eat, you know, and, and obviously we would rather it be, you know, mostly whole healthy foods. Uh, but it's your choice. But for me personally, I don't worry a whole lot about peri-workout nutrition. I just try and eat a balanced diet. And But that's, I'm in a different area, right? I'm not doing competitive stuff at the moment. It's hard to beat good old oats and whey. That's more of a breakfast meal for me personally. Um, but you could do like a fat-free yogurt with some fruit, you know. The, the big thing about a pre-workout meal is to make sure there's not a ton of fat and a ton of fiber in it. And, you know, so if you're going to do yogurt, like a fat-free version would, would be best, if, like a Greek yogurt preferably for the protein content. Some type of fruits, good idea. 
If you're into prepping a lot of meat, you could have a lower fat, fatty cut of meat with some kind of starch, like, you know, a small piece of chicken breast and some sweet potatoes. That's so Jimbro to me. I, I don't do that these days personally, but you could do that. Like I mentioned, you could do a refined grain product that's, you know, enriched wheat flour, you know, something like a Pop-Tart or something, but I would make sure that's not dominating your diet. But those are the few examples that come to mind, but it's really up to you. There's there's so many foods out there. Um, and, and honestly, working with people from different cultures, so many different foods I didn't even know about. And I, I get to learn about these new foods from people, which is uh, which is really cool. So, like I, I tried a new recipe recently with mung beans. Uh, it's an Indian dish, and uh, it's this it's a legume actually, but it was delicious. But I'd never never really messed with them before <laughs> until now. So, yeah, it's really coming back to you know that that it does kind of mean an overall healthy dietary pattern, uh, and you get to pick your foods. Cool, really, really good, good answer. Yeah, really. Uh, I appreciate that. I, I I try not to be too vague, but you know, I mean, I've got like a food list thing. I work with my clients. I guess like here's a list of like these category of high energy, like carbohydrate, fat foods, and then they get to pick from there. You know, because I'm you can sell someone a meal plan. I mean, there's plenty of coaches that do that, um, and people will follow up for a few weeks or a few months, but then inevitably life life changes things. So it's really important that people learn the basic principles and find their own ways to navigate changing these things on their own, and that's really what coaching is. So. I have a good. I'm really good at misdirecting your questions off to some another topic. I'm realizing, so hopefully we can stay on stay on topic for the next question. No, oh, this is perfect. You're great. Normally, we're all about misdirecting and misinformation. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I have notes and some other questions, but I want to make sure I answer the more pressing ones for you guys. What else is is on your mind? What about someone that uses a fit, a tracker? and is trying to transition to more intuitive eating. Hmm. Like, do you have tips and suggestions oh, on being able to get to that <laughs> We get to talk about or... intuitive eating on a powerlifting podcast? This is exciting. Um, hey, I have a, a, what's that? Bryant put me on the macro factor recently, and it sure. has been a game changer, an absolute game changer for me. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I personally have not used Macro Factor, but I have recommended it, recommended it to people because I am very familiar with Stronger by Science, and I know they're a totally awesome strength and science company for science, science communication, uh, and I've heard great things about Macro Factor. So uh, I'm not going to get on too much of a soapbox, but I, I'm going to just clarify something here <laughs> for your liter- listenership because I feel like this listenership probably doesn't know a lot about intuitive eating, and it's something that I chose to dive headfirst into like four years ago. And I basically surrounded myself with people with different ideas about nutrition for a long enough time that it kind of informed my own opinion better. I, that was my goal. It was hard at first. But okay, so we'll talk about kind of the benefits and downfalls of tracking in a second. But let's define intuitive eating. So intuitive eating is actually like a trademark principle 10-step, not quite 10-step, but it's like a 10-principle program developed by two dietitians in the 90s. Um, and I always mess up, their, mess up their last names. It's um, AAA and Reich, I think is how you pronounce their names. But these are two dietitians that had found that weight loss counseling for them, it was just kind of a roadblock for a lot of people, and they couldn't get very far with folks. And they noticed that encouraging people to focus more on their body sensations, their satiation signals, engaging in a healthy relationship with activity was giving their clients way better results overall. Maybe not weight loss, but they were a lot healthier, and they did more healthful behaviors when they more listened to their bodies and chose to eat not so much based on calories and macros, but based on what sounded good and while also meeting some basic principles of like a healthy diet, you know, like there's this bit of the, what's the word? There's kind of a misrepresentation of intuitive eating in the fitness scene that basically says, oh, I'm just, if I intuitively ate, I would just eat, you know, you know, pop tarts and ice cream and donuts all the time. Um, when in reality, if someone truly ate that consistently for a long time, they would get sick of it and probably wouldn't feel very good. So intuitive eating is Fundamentally, this is the biggest thing about IE, which I abbreviate that. I abbreviated that. Um, it, it is a non-diet approach. It's not about weight loss at all. And yeah, if you're in a weight class-based sport, it's probably not going to be the best fit for you. But there's tons of nuance in the conversation for this. You know, people are at different stages. Sometimes maybe someone comes out of competing in a weight class weight class sport for a while, and they decide that they want to move away from having a weight-centric paradigm. And I think that's awesome if that's what they want to do. But fundamentally, I would not expect intuitive eating to make people lose weight. That's not what it's for. Um, It sometimes happens, but the goal of IE is fundamentally not about weight loss. So just to be, I want to make sure I make that clear. I I feel like as a student dietitian, 
anti-dietitians hear people talking about IE incorrectly all the time. And I feel like it's my, this is my chance to make it clear to your audience that that is a certain paradigm. And it's, it's a great thing for some people. It's maybe not for everybody, of course. So let's talk about tracking and stuff. So I think maybe one of the biggest things that can happen when someone focuses on tracking for a long time is they start to lose a little bit of trust in the, their, their intuition, actually. So this is not formally intuitive eating. But I think what can happen, and this doesn't have to be specifically macros, you know, on my page I talk a lot about how macros tracking isn't always the best thing and it can kind of mislead you, but it can be the case for calorie tracking too. And this is why I encourage my clients when they're doing a weight loss diet and we're watching calorie intake is I, a, lot of, a lot of time I have them rate their hunger. I want you to make sure you're paying attention to how your body feels while you're losing weight. And so if you've lived, you know, inputting your food into, you know, a macro tracking app or weighing everything on a food scale for a long time... You're going to have to kind of like ease yourself off that a little bit at a time. And and what I would encourage people to do is to pick probably one meal. Um, I mean, let's be honest, uh, you know, there are flexible dieters that try and eat something different every day and like fit the macros, which to me is way too much work and probably not sustainable. That's just another topic. But you probably eat pretty similar things most of the time. There's always like variations, but, you know, humans, we kind of get into a groove with something um, and stick with it, you know. And so I, I feel like a lot of people could takes their kind of one of their meal routines probably breakfast because a lot of times that's the simplest meal for folks and they could simply just choose to like i've been putting in my 80 grams of oats and my 40 grams of protein powder and my you know cup of milk i've been doing this for six months now i probably could just not put the bowl on the food scale today and i'm just going to eyeball it and that might be scary for someone you know if someone's lost a lot of weight uh they feel like they made a lot of progress it, it, they get really attached, understandably so, to the objective information. I'm like, what is the grams of this food? You know, or what is what does the food label say about this package? Like, I've got to know that. Um, and I want to encourage people to. I wouldn't expect you to cold turkey quit tracking immediately, and, and that may actually lead to lead to rapid weight gain, depending on how you psychologically handle that. Because like macro tracking kind of is, it's a dietary intervention, right? Uh, and you can either be on that or off of it. And so we're talking about how do you kind of ease yourself back off that. But I would really focus on choosing one of those meals to just like, let me just not weigh everything today, or let me not scan this label today. I eat this all the time. Let me just have a normal meal, and let me just check in with myself. How do I feel an hour after this meal? And this is where it can be a kind of a nuanced conversation, because if someone does that, and they're like, I'm starving 20 minutes after my meal, I start to wonder if the, their calorie intake is just a bit too low, or their food selection is really poor. Um, because, you know, satiation is not just about your calorie intake. It's also about, you know, how much fiber and, you know, how diverse your diet is. And also protein, you know, is another factor that affects satiation. So but as far as like, what do I do, Josh, to answer your question, I, I would pick one of those meals that you are tracking currently and just, just try that one meal not tracking and then tune into yourself. How do you feel? And you may find that like, you know what, it's actually not that different for me not to track this. But what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. I me, I've been tracking for what three weeks now, and yeah, I kind of feel new. bad when I yeah. So like, I kind of feel bad when I don't put my food in there, mm-hmm. like when I don't scan in there, or like I'll put certain stuff in there and I feel real bad about it hmm. because I look at like the number of my calories should be and where they're actually at, or like where the fats are supposed to be and where it's actually at, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, do you have other thoughts about that? For me, I like what you about, you know, just becoming um, not necessarily intuitive eating, but just kind of being more conscious of what a serving size looks like. Because for most people, if you've never really measured things, like most people don't measure 32 grams of peanut butter for a serving. They just scoop it out of there. But after tracking you know me personally after doing a couple of bodybuilding preps and 16 weeks of measuring 32 grams of peanut butter i can pretty much eyeball a scoop of peanut butter and be like okay this is about two tablespoons or seven ounces of chicken or seven ounces of ground turkey or whatever it is so i think just kind of training yourself on being more aware of what a serving size is for different things um helps, helps a lot, a lot. And that, that way you know going into your off season or um, diet break or kind of just not stick to the scale, but just you've been doing this for a long time. So 
it, it, it makes a lot easier. So. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think that would be not just a diet break, but a mental break for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. And maybe instead of intuitive eating, more like being aware of what you're eating. Maybe it was the yeah. correct verbiage to use, but mm-hmm. I think, you know, for Josh, he's very new to it. So he might need that practice with tracking before he can decide if he's good to go here or not. Yeah. And I think he's, you know, he's very new to it. And I wouldn't even say you're cutting weight, Josh. I would say you're, you're dieting like for the first time in your life, which is mm-hmm. a yeah. big step. Yeah. Yeah, I had another thought. I wanted to make sure I, Josh had a chance to sit, share all his thoughts. But uh, I'll just say this to you, Josh. Um, like Brian was saying here, um, this is new things are new to people. And so it's going to take some time to get adjusted to it. And yeah, definitely just take some time to be okay, you know, with yourself. Like, hey, I'm not, I didn't track this today. Like, that's okay. You know, th- this change is, I, I don't know your full story, of course, um, just meeting you today. But any change is going to be a process. And it's, it's going to take time to learn and, and fall and pick yourself back up. And finding out, you know, I think it's actually great that we're having this conversation now, Josh, because you're hearing mm-hmm. just now from me on like people who just do the nutrition information tracking for a long time end up tuning out of their body. And that can really be a pitfall that you can avoid because um, cause I would even if you continue to track right now, which is, it sounds like you want to, I would still t- stay tuned into like how are these meals making me feel? It may mean you make some adjustments to some of the foods you're picking out, you know. But I would keep in tune with that, you know? And for the days you don't track, that still applies. Like, am I feeling energized? Am I feeling satiated? And I know for me, the, the, this is just a random anecdote of myself. The mornings I eat, like, my balanced, like, oatmeal breakfast, it's it's honestly such a different morning for me. Uh, so much so that uh, I, it's just, it's like a bad day if it doesn't happen for me. And it's not at all like this toxic thing. It's just like, I'm not energized. I'm not fueled right now. I'm foggy. And so I would encourage you in that, Josh. As, yeah, there's nothing wrong with going into tracking to lose weight, but make sure you don't lose track of how you're feeling inside. A lot of this is um, it's physiological and also mental as well. But it's a process that you'll have to explore as you as you experiment with this, you know. No, I'm like talking to you is kind of kind of I guess clear things up for me, and I can kind of I get a better idea of how I need to approach it. Not as the diet's like a strict thing. Oh, I need to do this, this time, this, this time, eat this, then. It's kind of a, I don't know how to, I don't know the word for it. Well, I think we have like, the internet makes it very complicated. Yeah. When you see so many people on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, and they're bodybuilders or really competitive powerlifters, and you see how strict they are about everything they do. And now you're, you can hear from someone that can tell you it's not like that in reality. Yeah. Yeah. The dieting or losing weight or gaining weight is very, very similar to training philosophies that you already take part in 12 week blocks, 16 week blocks. You can think of a diet in the same way because it's not all going to happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, the basic bricks have to be laid, but you know how you lay them may may be different in different seasons. Just a, a training example, mm-hmm. I wanted to squat 500 pounds for such a long time. I thought I was going to squat 500 pounds at my first meet, and I bombed 470-something, I think. Did I load 470? No, it wasn't, even that, it wasn't even that much. It was like, I got 400, but it was like 420 or something I bombed. I don't remember. Um, I, I had this crazy expectation about this the squat I was going to do, and it turned out that was 2018 when that happened. I squatted 500 pounds in 2022. So... Four years later, but what did we talk about earlier in the podcast? Yeah. I didn't stop training. I still squatted with a barbell, you know, maybe not every week, but I was doing some kind of squat every week for years. Uh, and that's something that I was finally able to get to, which is really exciting. And it can be the same for changing your diet, you know. Tracking is probably like drinking out of a fire hydrant for people that are new to it. I love to hear Josh's thoughts on that because it's like if you've never looked at a nutrition label, it's so it's so much information, you know. And so take some time to be kind to yourself and recognize that like it's going to take steps at a time. Um, and that every day is not going to be optimal, you know, maybe your fats go over and stuff. And I personally have opinions about tracking carbs and fat for, for weight loss in general. Um, we don't have to get into that if you don't want to, but, um, yeah, every day is going to be a little bit different because, you know, your capacity is different for each day. It's kind of like training with RPE. Um, so giving yourself that long-term vision, I think would be really helpful. I would like to ask, we've asked everyone this, that we've, interviewed thus far but if you could let's say say sit sit down down for an hour hour with 
any one person in the fitness industry, past or present, who would it be? And oh, why? man. Who would it be and why? I'm trying to think who I just really... Honestly, a lot of the people that I'm inspired by are still around today, and it's not impossible for me to think about running into them someday. Uh, I mean, I should pick some famous person. Ronnie Coleman's still around, of course. <laughs> you know, he's not in his prime, but uh, it, it would be. I saw he was at some gym recently with just some guys who were lifting there, and he was like, yeah, you know, training with them and you know, gassing them up. That would be awesome to 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 hang with the the king. Like I said, I haven't competed in the bodybuilding. I don't know you had, Carson, that you've done some preps. That's awesome. Um, but it, it would be cool to hang with him. Um, I also would love to just chill with Alberto Nunez. If you guys follow any body, nat, natty bodybuilders, he's like the, he's the, I just think he's the GOAT. I love that guy and his his mindset. I listen to most of his podcasts. He's also got an incredible physique, you know, due to his hard work and he has, you know, genetics for it too. But he, he talk about someone that like lays the bricks every day. The guy's been training consistently for bodybuilding for like 20 years. I mean, not 20, but close to 20 years now. And um, placed really high at a big show recently went during his last prep. And uh, I just think he, he's got a lot of – he's got a neat perspective on someone who is a bodybuilder full-time. I, I think I think his mindset around it is really admirable. Another guy, Jeff Alberts, his coworker with It3DMJ. That whole group of people are awesome. Um, so some of that crew would be neat yeah, to hang are. with. 3D could, Muscle Journey guys, they're awesome. Eric yeah, Holmes. for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, I would say, well, the first person I touched in the fitness, not touched, but the first person that like reached me in the fitness, fitness industry was actually Lyle McDonald. If you guys know about him, talk about a polarizing figure. Um, but uh, he led me to Eric Helms, which led me to the strength of pyramids and stuff, which led me to revive stronger. Yeah. And that's kind of my, my like, you know, what's the word? He was kind of my gateway nice. drug into the evidence-based fitness scene. And that was back in like 2017. Uh, but if I could extend um, this question to someone like in nutrition science, which is not the question, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, he's he's passed away now, but Ansel Keys was an absolute legend in um, epidemiology and nutrition science. Um, he uh, he led so many important studies that for things we know about weight loss um, and cardiovascular disease and all those things. So it'd be cool. I'm not even smart enough to pick his brain yet, but maybe like in five years when I'm done with my program and I'm a dietitian, uh, I could ask him some intelligent questions about his studies. But um, that would be a neat person to meet. Yeah, Mark, we really appreciate you coming on. It's really nice and refreshing to talk with someone so knowledgeable and with the experience you have, the knowledge you have, so well-spoken. So we appreciate it. And uh, Bryant, you want to close this out here? Yeah, I'll close it out. That was <laughs> your Friday night at the Barbell with Mark Minyard, Carson Wendell, and Josh Sellers. Thanks, guys.